Welcome to a special edition of the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert Hazelton, and I'll be your host. Today I'm going to take Halloween for a stroll by reading three scary short stories by some authors you may have heard of. First up will be The Unnameable by H.P. Lovecraft. Then you'll hear The Diary of a Madman by Guy de Maupassant. Then we'll wrap up with The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. That's a lot of reading to get through, so we're going to dive right in. The Unnameable by H.P. Lovecraft. The Unnameable was written in September of 1923, and it was published in July of 1925 in an issue of Weird Tales. Uh, You may have actually seen the movie version of this, which is actually not too bad, but the actual short story is pretty much represented in the first five minutes of the film, and after that it kind of turns into your average slasher, cast-trimming horror with some Lovecraftian twists. The sequel is actually really cool if you can find it, and actually I watch it every year for Halloween. But anyway, without further ado, here's the actual story, The Unnameable. We were sitting on a dilapidated 17th century tomb in the late afternoon of an autumn day at the old burying ground in Arkham and speculating about the unnameable. Looking toward the giant willow in the center of the cemetery, whose trunk has nearly engulfed an ancient, illegible slab, I had made a fantastic remark about the spectral and unmentionable nourishment which the colossal roots must be sucking in from that hoary, charnel earth when my friend chided me for such nonsense, and told me that since no internments had occurred there for over a century, nothing could possibly exist to nourish the tree in other than an ordinary manner. Besides, he added, my constant talk about unnameable and unmentionable things was a very puerile device, quite in keeping with my lowly standing as an author. I was too fond of ending my stories with sights or sounds which paralyzed my hero's faculties, and left them without courage, words, or associations to tell what they had experienced. We know things, he said, only through our five senses, or our religious institutions. Wherefore, it is quite impossible to refer to any object or spectacle which cannot be clearly depicted by the solid definitions of fact or the correct doctrines of theology." preferably those of the Congregationalists, with whatever modifications tradition and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle may supply. With this friend, Joel Manton, I had often languidly disputed. He was principal of the East High School, born and bred in Boston, and sharing New England's self-satisfied deafness to the delicate overtones of life. It was his view that only our normal, objective experiences possess any aesthetic significance— and that it is the province of the artist not so much to rouse strong emotion by action, ecstasy, and astonishment, as to maintain a placid interest and appreciation by accurate, detailed transcripts of everyday affairs. Especially did he object to my preoccupation with the mystical and the unexplained, for although believing in the supernatural much more fully than I, he would not admit that it is sufficiently commonplace for literary treatment that a mind can find its greatest pleasure in escapes from the daily treadmill and in original and dramatic recombinations of images, usually thrown by habit and fatigue into the hackneyed patterns of actual existence, was something virtually incredible to his clear, practical, and logical intellect. With him, all things and feelings had fixed dimensions, properties, causes, and effects, and although he vaguely knew that the mind sometimes holds visions and sensations of far less geometrical, classifiable, and workable nature, he believed himself justified in drawing an arbitrary line and ruling out of court all that cannot be experienced and understood by the average citizen. Besides, he was almost sure that nothing can be really unnameable. It didn't sound sensible to him. 
Though I well realized the futility of imaginative and metaphysical arguments against the complacency of an orthodox sun-dweller, something in the scene of this afternoon colloquy moved me to more than usual contentiousness. The crumbling slate slabs, the patriarchal trees, and the centuried gambrel roofs of the witch-haunted old town that stretched around all combined to rouse my spirit in defense of my work, and I was soon carrying my thrusts into the enemy's own country. It was not, indeed, difficult to begin a counterattack, for I knew that Joel Manton actually half-clung to many old wives' superstitions, which sophisticated people had long outgrown. Beliefs in the appearance of dying persons at distant places and in the impressions left by old faces on the window through which they had gazed all of their lives. To credit these whisperings of rural grandmothers, I now insisted, argued a faith in the existence of spectral substances on the earth, apart from and subsequent to their material counterparts. It argued a capability of believing in phenomena beyond all normal notions, for if a dead man can transmit his visible or tangible image half across the world or down the stretch of the centuries, how could it be absurd to suppose that deserted houses are full of queer sentient things, or that old graveyards teem with the terrible, unbodied intelligence of generations? And since spirit, in order to cause all the manifestations attributed to it, cannot be limited by any of the laws of matter, why is it extravagant to imagine psychically living dead things in shapes or absences of shapes, which must for human spectators be utterly and appallingly unnameable? Common sense, in reflecting on these subjects, I assured my friend, with some warmth, is merely a stupid absence of imagination and mental flexibility." Twilight had now approached, but neither of us felt any wish to cease speaking. Manton seemed unimpressed by my arguments and eager to refute them, having that confidence in his own opinions which had doubtless caused his success as a teacher, whilst I was too sure of my ground to fear defeat. The dusk fell, and lights faintly gleamed in some of the distant windows, but we did not move. Our seat on the tomb was very comfortable, and I knew that my prosaic friend would not mind the cavernous rift in the ancient, root-disturbed brickwork close behind us, or the utter blackness of the spot brought by the intervention of a tottering, deserted 17th-century house between us and the nearest lighted road. There, in the dark, upon that riven tomb by the deserted house, we talked on about the unnameable. And after my friend had finished his scoffing, I told him of the awful evidence behind the story at which he had scoffed the most. My tale had been called The Attic Window, and appeared in the January 1922 issue of Whispers. In a good many places, especially the South and the Pacific Coast, they took the magazine off the stands at the complaints of silly milksops, but New Englanders didn't get the thrill and merely shrugged its shoulders at my extravagance. The thing, it was averred, was biologically impossible to start with, merely another of those crazy country mutterings which Cotton Mather had been gullible enough to dump into his chaotic Magnolia Christi Americana, and so poorly authenticated that even he had not ventured to name the locality where the horror occurred. And as to the way I amplified the bare jotting of the old mystic, that was quite impossible, and characteristic of a flighty and notional scribbler. Mather had indeed told of the thing as being born, but nobody but a cheap sensationalist would think of having it grow up, look into people's windows at night, and be hidden in the attic of a house, in flesh and in spirit, till someone saw it at the window centuries later, and couldn't describe what it was that turned his hair gray. All this was flagrant trashiness, and my friend Manton was not slow to insist on that fact. Then I told him what I found in an old diary kept between 1706 and 1723, unearthed among family papers not a mile from where we were sitting. 
That and the certain reality of the scars on my ancestor's chest and back which the diary described. I told him, too, of the fears of others in that region, and how they were whispered down for generations, and how no mythical madness came to the boy who, in 1793, entered an abandoned house to examine certain traces suspected to be there. It had been an eldritch thing. No wonder sensitive students shudder at the Puritan age in Massachusetts. So little is known of what went on beneath the surface. So little, yet such a ghastly festering as it bubbles up putrescently in occasional ghoulish glimpses. The witchcraft terror is a horrible ray of light on what was stewing in men's crushed brains, but even that is a trifle. There was no beauty, no freedom. We can see that from the architectural and household remains, and the poisonous sermons of the cramped divines. And inside that rusted iron straitjacket lurked gibbering hideousness, perversion, and diabolism. Here, truly, was the apotheosis of the unnameable. Cotton Mather, in that demonic sixth book which no one should read after dark, minced no words as he flung forth his anathema. Stern as a Jewish prophet, and laconically unamazed as none since his day could be, he told of the beast that had brought forth what was more than beast, but less than man, the thing with the blemished eye, and of the screaming drunken wretch that they hanged for having such an eye. This much he baldly told, yet without a hint of what came after. Perhaps he did not know, or perhaps he knew and did not dare to tell. Others knew, but did not dare to tell. There is no public hint of why they whispered about the lock on the door to the attic stairs in the house of a childless, broken, embittered old man who had put up a blank slate slab by an avoided grave, although one may trace enough evasive legends to curdle the thinnest blood. It is all in that ancestral diary I found, all the hushed innuendos and furtive tales of things with a blemished eye seen at windows in the night or in deserted meadows near the woods. Something had caught my ancestor on a dark valley road, leaving him with marks of horns on his chest and of ape-like claws on his back, and when they looked for prints in the trampled dust, they found the mixed marks of split hooves and vaguely anthropoid paws. Once a post-writer said he saw an old man chasing and calling to a frightful, loping, nameless thing on Meadow Hill in the thinly moonlit hours before dawn, and many believed him. Certainly there was strange talk one night in 1710 when the childless, broken old man was buried in the crypt behind his own house in sight of the blank slate slab. They never unlocked that attic door, but left the whole house as it was, dreaded and deserted. When noises came from it, they whispered and shivered and hoped that the lock on the attic door was strong. Then they stopped hoping when the horror occurred at the parsonage, leaving not a soul alive or in one piece. With the years, the legends take on a spectral character. I suppose the thing, if it was a living thing, must have died. The memory had lingered hideously, all the more hideous because it was so secret. During this narration, my friend Manton had become very silent, and I saw that my words had impressed him. He did not laugh as I paused, but asked quite seriously about the boy who went mad in 1793, and who had presumably been the hero of my fiction. I told him why the boy had gone to that shunned, deserted house, and remarked that he ought to be interested, since he believed that window retained latent images of those who had sat at them. The boy had gone to look at the windows of that horrible attic, because of tales of things seen behind them, and had come back screaming maniacally. Manton remained thoughtful as I said this, but gradually reverted to his analytical mood. He granted for the sake of argument that some unnatural monster had really existed, but reminded me that even the most morbid perversion of nature need not be unnameable or scientifically indescribable. 
I admired his clearness and persistence, and added some further revelations I had collected among the old people. Those later spectral legends, I made plain, related to monstrous apparitions more frightful than anything organic could be. Apparitions of gigantic, bestial forms, sometimes visible and sometimes only tangible, which floated about on moonless nights and haunted the old house, the grip behind it, and the grave where the sapling had sprouted beside an illegible slab. Whether or not such apparitions had ever gored or smothered people to death, as told in uncorroborated traditions, they had produced a strong and consistent impression, and were yet darkly feared by very aged natives, though largely forgotten by the last two generations, perhaps dying for lack of being thought about. Moreover, so far as aesthetic theory was involved, if the psychic emanations of human creatures be grotesque distortions, what coherent representation could express or portray so gibbous and infamous a nebulosity as the specter of a malign, chaotic perversion, itself a morbid blasphemy against nature? Molded by the dead brain of a hybrid nightmare, would not such a vaporous terror constitute in all loathsome truth the exquisitely, the shriekingly, unnameable. The hour must now have grown very late. A singularly noiseless bat brushed by me, and I believe it touched Manton also, for although I could not see him, I felt him raise his arm. Presently, he spoke. But is that house with the attic window still standing and deserted? Yes, I answered. I have seen it. And did you find anything there, in the attic or anywhere else? There were some bones up under the eaves. They may have been what the boy saw. If he was sensitive, he wouldn't have needed anything in the window glass to unhinge him. If they all came from the same object, it must have been an hysterical, delirious monstrosity. It would have been blasphemous to leave such bones in the world, so I went back with a sack and took them to the tomb behind the house. There was an opening where I could dump them in. Don't think I was a fool. Ah, you ought to have seen that skull. It had four-inch horns, but a face and jaw something like yours and mine. At last I could feel a real shiver run through Manton, who had moved very near, but his curiosity was undeterred. And, and what about the window panes? Oh, they were all gone. One window had lost its entire frame, and in the other there was not a trace of glass in the little diamond apertures. They were that kind, the old lattice windows that went out of use before 1700. I don't believe they've had any glass for a hundred years, or more. Maybe the boy broke them if he got that far. The legend doesn't say. Manton was reflecting again. I'd like to see that house, Carter. Where is it? Glass or no glass, I must explore it a little. And the tomb where you put those bones and the other graves without an inscription. The whole thing must be a bit terrible. You did see it, until it got dark. My friend was more wrought upon than I had suspected, for at this touch of harmless theatricalism, he started neurotically away from me and actually cried out with a sort of gulping gasp, which released a strain of previous repression. It was an odd cry, and all the more terrible because it was answered. For as it was still echoing, I heard a creaking sound through the pitchy blackness and knew that a lattice window was opening in that accursed old house behind us. And because all the other frames were long since fallen, I knew that it was the grisly glassless frame of that demonic attic window. Then came a noxious rush of noisome frigid air from that same dreaded direction, followed by a piercing shriek just beside me on that shocking, rifted tomb of man and monster. In another instant, I was knocked from my gruesome bench by the devilish threshing of some unseen entity of titanic size but undetermined nature. 
knocked sprawling on the root-clutched mold of that abhorrent graveyard, while from the tomb came such a stifled uproar of gasping and whirring that my fancy peopled the rayless gloom with miltonic legions of the misshapen damned. There was a vortex of withering, ice-cold wind, and then the rattle of loose bricks and plaster, but I had mercifully fainted before I could learn what it meant. Manton, though smaller than I, is more resilient, for we opened our eyes at almost the same instant, despite his greater injuries. Our couches were side by side, and we knew in a few seconds that we were in St. Mary's Hospital. Attendants were grouped about in tense curiosity, eager to aid our memory by telling us how we came there, and we soon heard of the farmer who had found us at noon in a lonely field beyond Meadow Hill, a mile from the old burying ground, on a spot where an ancient slaughterhouse is reputed to have stood. Manton had two malignant wounds in the chest and some less severe cuts or gougings in the back. I was not so seriously hurt, but was covered with welts and contusions of the most bewildering character, including the print of a split hoof. It was plain that Manton knew more than I, but he told nothing to the puzzled and interested physicians till he had learned what our injuries were. Then he said we were the victims of a vicious bull, though the animal was a different thing to place and account for. After the doctors and nurses had left, I whispered an awestruck question. Good God, Manton, what was it? Those scars, was it, was it like that? And I was too dazed to exult when he whispered back a thing I had half expected. No, no, it wasn't that way at all. It was everywhere, a gelatin, a slime, yet it had shapes, a thousand shapes of horror beyond all memory. There were eyes and a blemish. It was the pit, the maelstrom, the ultimate abomination. Carter, it was the unnameable. The Diary of a Madman by Guy de Maupassant This short story was published in October of 1886. There's a longer version which involves a supernatural being haunting the bad guy, and it's called La Horla. That was published in 1887. These stories inspired a movie with Vincent Price from 1963, but I couldn't find anywhere to watch it, so I can't advise you that way. But anyway, without further ado, here is The Diary of a Madman. He was dead. The head of a high tribunal, the upright magistrate whose irreproachable life was a proverb in all the courts of France. Advocates, young counselors, judges had greeted him at sight of his large, thin, pale face, lighted up by two sparkling, deep-set eyes, bowing low in token of respect. He had passed his life in pursuing crime and in protecting the weak. Swindlers and murderers had no more redoubtable enemy, for he seemed to read the most secret thoughts of their minds. He was dead, now, at the age of 82, honored by the homage and followed by the regrets of a whole people. Soldiers in red trousers had escorted him to the tomb, and men in white cravats had spoken words and shed tears that seemed to be sincere beside his grave. But here is the strange paper found by the dismayed notary in the desk where he had kept the records of great criminals. It was entitled, Why? 20th June, 1851. I have just left court. I have condemned Blondel to death. Now, why did this man kill his five children? Frequently one meets with people to whom the destruction of life is a pleasure. Yes, yes, it should be a pleasure. The greatest of all, perhaps. For is not killing the next thing to creating? to make and to destroy. These two words contain the history of the universe, all the history of worlds, all that is, all. Why is it not intoxicating to kill? 25th June. To think that a being is there who lives, who walks, who runs, 
A being? (laughs) What is a being? That animated thing that bears in it the principle of motion and a will ruling that motion. It is attached to nothing, this thing. Its feet do not belong to the ground. It is a grain of life that moves on the earth. And this grain of life, coming I know not whence, one can destroy at one's will. Then nothing, nothing more. It perishes, it is finished. 26th June. Why then is it a crime to kill? Yes, why? On the contrary, it is the law of nature. The mission of every being is to kill. He kills to live, and he kills to kill. The beast kills without ceasing, all day, every instant of his existence. Man kills without ceasing, to nourish himself. But since he needs, besides, to kill for pleasure, he has invented hunting. The child kills the insects he finds, the little birds, all the little animals that come in his way. But this does not suffice for the irresistible need to massacre that is in us. It is not enough to kill beasts. We must kill man too. Long ago this need was satisfied by human sacrifices. Now the requirements of social life have made murder a crime. We condemn and punish the assassin. But as we cannot live without yielding to this natural and imperious instinct of death, we relieve ourselves from time to time by wars. Then a whole nation slaughters another nation. It is a feast of blood, a feast that maddens armies and that intoxicates civilians, women, and children who read, by lamplight at night, the feverish story of massacre. One might suppose that those destined to accomplish these butcheries of men would be despised. No, they are loaded with honors. They are clad in gold and in resplendent garments. They wear plumes on their heads and ornaments on their breasts, and they are given crosses, rewards, titles of every kind. They are proud, respected, loved by women, cheered by the crowd, solely because their mission is to shed human blood. They drag through the streets their instruments of death that the passerby, clad in black, looks on in envy. For to kill is the great law set by nature in the heart of existence. There is nothing more beautiful and honorable than killing. 30th June. To kill is the law, because nature loves eternal youth. She seems to cry in all her unconscious acts, quick, quick, quick. The more she destroys, the more she renews herself. 2nd July. A human being. What is a human being? Through thought it is a reflection of all that is. Through memory and science, it is an abridged edition of the universe whose history it represents, a mirror of things and of nations. Each human being becomes a microcosm in the macrocosm. 3rd July. It must be a pleasure, unique and full of zest, to kill, to have there before one the living, thinking being, to make therein a little hole, nothing but a little hole, to see that red thing flow which is the blood, which makes life and to have before one only a heap of limp flesh, cold, inert, void of thought. 5th August. I, who have passed my life in judging, condemning, killing by the spoken word, killing by the guillotine those who had killed by the knife, I, I, if I should do as all the assassins have done whom I have smitten, I, I, who would know it? 10th August. Who would ever know? Who would ever suspect me? 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 Especially if I should choose a being I had no interest in doing away with. 15th August. The temptation has come to me. It pervades my whole being. My hands tremble with the desire to kill. 22nd August. 
I could resist no longer. I killed the little creature as an experiment, for a beginning. Jean, my servant, had a goldfinch in a cage hung in the office window. I sent him on an errand, and I took the little bird in my hand, in my hand where I felt its heart beat. It was warm. I went up to my room. From time to time I squeezed it tighter. Its heart beat faster. This was atrocious and delicious. I was near choking it, but I could not see the blood. Then I took scissors, short nail scissors, and I cut its throat with three slits, quite gently. It opened its bill. It struggled to escape me, but I held it. Oh, I held it. I could have held a mad dog. And I saw the blood trickle. And then I did as assassins do, real ones. I washed the scissors. I washed my hands. I sprinkled water and took the body, the corpse, to the garden to hide it. I buried it under a strawberry plant. It will never be found. Every day I shall eat a strawberry from that plant. How one can enjoy life when one knows how. My servant cried. He thought his bird flown. How could he suspect me? Aha. 25th August. I must kill a man. I must. 30th August. It is done. But what a little thing. I had gone for a walk in the forest of Vernes. I was thinking of nothing, literally nothing. A child was in the road, a little child, eating a slice of bread and butter. He stops to see me pass and says, Good day, Mr. President. And the thought enters my head. Shall I kill him? I answer, You are alone, my boy? Yes, sir. All alone in the wood? Yes, sir. The wish to kill him intoxicated me like wine. I approached him quite softly, persuaded that he was going to run away. And suddenly, I seized him by the throat. He looked at me with terror in his eyes. Oh, such eyes! He held my wrists in his little hands, and his body writhed like a feather over the fire. Then he moved no more. I threw the body in the ditch, and some weeds on top of it. I returned home and dined well. What a little thing it was. In the evening, I was very gay. Light rejuvenated. I passed the evening at the prefects. They found me witty. But I have not seen blood. I am tranquil. 31st August. The body has been discovered. They are hunting for the assassin. Ha <laughs> ha 1st September. Two tramps have been arrested. Proofs are lacking. 2nd September. The parents have been to see me. They wept. Aha. 6th October. Nothing has been discovered. Some strolling vagabond must have done the deed. Aha. Uh, if I had seen the blood flow. It seems to me I should be tranquil now. The desire to kill is in my blood. It is like the passion of youth at twenty. 20th October. Yet another. I was walking by the river after breakfast, and I saw, under a willow, a fisherman asleep. It was noon. A spade was standing in a potato field nearby, as if expressly for me. I took it. I returned. I raised it like a club, and with one blow of the edge I cleft the fisherman's head. Oh, he bled this one. Rose-colored blood. It flowed into the water quite gently, and I went away with a grave step. If I had been seen, oh, ha, 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 I should have made an excellent assassin. 25th October. The affair of the fisherman makes a great stir. His nephew, who fished with him, is charged with the murder. 26th October. The examining magistrate affirms that the nephew is guilty. Everybody in town believes it. <laughs> 27th October. The nephew makes a very poor witness. He had gone to the village to buy bread and cheese, he declared. He swore that his uncle had been killed in his absence. Who would believe him? 
28th October. The nephew has all but confessed. They have badgered him so. Aha! Justice. 15th November. There are overwhelming proofs against the nephew who was his uncle's heir. I shall preside at the sessions. 25th January. To death! To death! To death! I have had him condemned to death. Aha! The advocate general spoke like an angel. Aha! Yet another. I shall go to see him executed. 10th March. It is done. They guillotined him this morning. He died very well, very well. That gave me pleasure. How fine it is to see a man's head cut off. Now I shall wait. I can wait. It would take such a little thing to let myself be caught. The manuscript contained yet other pages, but without relating any new crime. Alienist physicians to whom the awful story has been submitted declare that there are in the world many undiscovered madmen as adroit and as much to be feared as this monstrous lunatic. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe Well, I don't really think this one requires too much in the way of introduction. Pretty sure most people know it. It's a great story that I've loved for so long, and it's just, it was so inspiring I had to do this one too. So, I'm not even going to really talk too much more about it. Let's just dive right into The Telltale Heart. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, this is the point. You fancy me mad. <laughs> Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously. Cautiously, for the hinges creaked, I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work. 
for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed, to suspect that every night just at twelve I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, my own sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he was not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now, you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no, it was the low stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it is welled up from my own bosom deepening with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or... It is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple, dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now I say, there came to my ears a low, 
dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say it louder, every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him and smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatsoever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. Ha <laughs> ha! When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. 
The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness. Until at length, I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale. But I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased. And what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles and high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard it not? Almighty God, no, no. They heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear these hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now again, hark, louder, 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 villains! I shrieked, dissemble no more, I admit the deed, tear up the planks, here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. Alright, thank you guys very much for listening to this special edition of the Society Case Files podcast. If you really enjoyed this and you want to hear more, please check out the website, we're at www.societycasefiles.com, or you can find me at www.roberthazelton.com. Don't forget to support or follow the project at ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles. Thanks very much. Have a great Halloween. <laughs>